0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Hey friends, I'm Bob Thune, and I'm here alone for this episode. This is going to be the Wednesday monologue rather than the Wednesday conversation. Here's what it sounds like. Yep, it's just crickets other than me. Um... Here's how this special episode came to be. Um, occasionally, I joke with our church and with our staff that on any given Sunday, I usually create like four or five different sermon outlines, and then I only preach one of them. And sometimes people say, Hey, I'd like to know about those other three sermon outlines that you didn't preach. And so, this uh, during Holy Week, uh, I thought, What a great opportunity! to talk a little bit about some of the things I didn't say and haven't said in recent sermons, but that are there in the Bible. One of the things I really appreciate about the listeners of this podcast and about um, the people of Quorum Deo Church is that they're biblically interested and curious and want to understand the Bible and be good students of the Bible. And so oftentimes when people ask like, hey, what, what else didn't you say? What they're saying is, hey, I want to understand more of the story here What else is there to see that didn't get delivered in the sermon on Sunday on this passage? And so recently we've been working at Quorum Deo through the gospel of John. And of course, during this Holy Week season have come to the crucifixion and resurrection in John 18 through 20. And so I wanted to point out um, a few really clever, interesting things that John is doing in his record of this that are there for the careful reader to discern. One of the things I've often said about reading the Bible is people ask me, um, Hey, how do I become an intelligent reader of the Bible? Oftentimes what I say is you just have to read it for a long time. Um, just make yourself a a disciplined reader of the Bible over years, meaning having a Bible reading plan and just sort of like faithfully working through that every year. And what begins to happen is you just become more and more familiar with themes and storylines and major events in scripture. And as that happens, the Bible kind of opens up to you in new ways. That, of course, would have been what happened for most of Jesus' early followers and disciples because most of them were Jewish people who had been raised since their childhood reading, memorizing, hearing the Scriptures. Most of these people were well-versed in the Old Testament narrative, and therefore when we as modern readers come to the New Testament story, sometimes we are missing all kinds of Old Testament connections that would have been there for the original readers and that certainly were there for the writer, that we just don't have the biblical insight yet to really see all of them. So one of the joys of the job that I get to do, in addition to just trying to continue to build my own biblical practice and literacy, is obviously as I do the work of preaching, I'm studying commentaries and looking at how other people have examined the texts and the things that they have seen there. Many of the commentaries that I am reading are from really brilliant uh, New Testament scholars. And so obviously these are people who have spent their lives studying the scriptures and seeing the connections that are there. And usually in commentaries, as in any discipline, there's also um, to write a good commentary. Let's put it this way. To write a good commentary, you have to be familiar with all the other commentaries that have been written on that particular book. So there's a history of interpretation here and so oftentimes what modern commentaries are doing is they're just introducing you to some of the best insights throughout history that various uh, theologians have had about these texts so particularly the gospel writer john is interesting to me and i think there's some powerful things for us to reflect on during this holy week in the gospel of john that didn't make it into sermons recently But that I want to draw out for you specifically in his record of Jesus' crucifixion and death in John chapter 19. So uh, let's talk about the concept of biblical illusions. We've mentioned this on the Wednesday conversation before. I'm saying illusions with an A, not illusions with an I. I don't mean seeing things that aren't there. What an illusion is, is it's a reference to something that's kind of intuitive. In other words, it's not like saying, hey, in this chapter and verse, here's something that happened. Rather, it's um, making reference to something in the flow of thought in a way that only an intelligent reader might see the connection. So as an example, um, here's what's not an illusion. When John tells us in John chapter 19, uh, verse 36, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's an explicit. He's saying, "Hey, this happened so that it might fulfill this Old Testament scripture." That's an explicit reference. But also, John in his in his writing has a ton of Old Testament allusions. He's he's drawing connections that, for a reader who knows the Old Testament, the connections are plain. But for someone who might not be as familiar, you could read the whole thing and just kind of miss the allusion. Another way that scholars talk about this is a word called intertextuality. In other words, within the text of John itself, there are back references to things he said before. There are connections to earlier parts of the story. As we preach the gospel of John, one of the things I mentioned in the beginning is that most scholars believe the prologue, the first 18 verses of John's gospel, was the very last thing written. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, uh, without him was nothing made that was made, um, th- this introduction is written at the very end of the gospel. It's like the last thing John wrote as a, and then appended it as an introduction. And so what we, what we see is this introduction is setting up for us themes that are going to be drawn on throughout the whole gospel. That's the, the discipline of intertextuality. There's going to be these intertextual connections that will be made throughout the whole gospel. So I wanted to mention a couple allusions, a couple intertextual symbols that John is uh, profoundly using and uh, that are really fascinating to a reader of this um, gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, which is, of course, not the writing of John, but the writing of the Apostle Paul. Let me get there in my Bible as I'm flipping. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Paul says this. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, 1 Corinthians is one of the earlier books written in the New Testament epistles. And when he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, he's expressing there's something that would have been a foundational conviction of the early church. The early church understood Christ to be our Passover lamb who had been sacrificed. That in itself is a connection to the Old Testament, but you have to ask the question, how did the early church make this connection? Now, obviously, Jesus led his disciples in a Bible study uh, uh, after his resurrection, as we read about in the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, And so it's not surprising that Jesus would have helped them make these connections. However, the other place we see this connection quite explicitly is in the writing of John, in the Gospel of John. John is fascinated with the connection between Jesus' death and the Passover lamb being sacrificed. And there are a few fascinating connections uh, that he gives us in his account of Jesus' death that, for the curious reader, help us connect to the day of Passover. Now, of course, the day of Passover begins as referenced in Exodus and then throughout the Old Testament. But is the day when God passed over the judgment of Egypt and passed over the houses of his people, asked them to put blood on the doorposts. And of course, Christians throughout history have seen this as a, a sign, a type of uh, Christ's redemption. That we're putting It's the blood that, by which God passes over us in judgment, and that is prefacing and prefiguring, um, obviously, Christ's greater work. Now, here's some fascinating things in John's account. Let me read to you from John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. That in itself is a fascinating connection if we remember that in John 4, Jesus said he was the water of life. Anyone who comes to me, I will give him living water so that he will never thirst. So the one who is himself the living water is now thirsting. John intends us to see the importance of that fact. He's also uh, fulfilling there Um, Psalm 69 which speaks of thirsting and the psalmist receiving sour wine to drink. So there's an obvious connection to the vocation of David, the psalmist, or the greatest psalmist, and Jesus' understanding of his role as the greater son of David. But it goes on to say, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now here's the question, why a hyssop branch? Why does John feel that the nature of the branch is important? This is one of the questions that intelligent readers would ask of a text. Why why does he describe it this way? Why isn't it just a branch? Why why a hyssop branch? Well, the answer is, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, we read, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. As God gave his people instructions on how they were to do the Passover, it involved dipping a hyssop branch in the blood. And this continues throughout the Old Testament. The hyssop branch is the branch the priests would use to sprinkle blood on the altar to cleanse the people. So it seems that this is not just a random fact of the kind of branch, but that this is intentional. John wants you to understand that they raised the sour wine up to Jesus on a hyssop branch because it has Passover allusions. Likewise, we, when we keep reading verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed up his head. And gave up his spirit. He goes on to tell us that after Jesus died, um, the Jews asked that the legs of the crucified people might be broken so they could be brought down before the Sabbath, verse thirty-two. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He goes on in verse thirty-six to say these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, when I preached this uh, this text last Sunday at Quorum Day Church, I said I think the most likely reference here is Psalm 34, where it speaks of the righteous person being guarded by the Lord, and not one of his bones will be broken. That's probably the clearest Old Testament reference here, but it's actually likely that John has a double reference in mind, that he has in mind Psalm 34, but also again. Exodus chapter 12, because listen to what Exodus twelve forty six says. Speaking of the eating of the Passover, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. Speaking of the lamb that was to be eaten at the Passover. And so it's likely that John has in mind, not just Psalm 34, but the Passover lamb whose bones were not to be broken because it's clear that he sees Jesus as the Passover lamb. It's also interesting in this connection that John mentions to us in chapter 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. This is the hour at which the Passover lambs throughout Jerusalem would have been killed and prepared for Passover. So John sets the time of Jesus' execution at the same moment that the Passover lambs Are being sacrificed throughout Jerusalem. Again, it's not an accidental fact. John is trying to draw an explicit connection between the death of Jesus as our Passover lamb and all of these connections to the Passover the time at which the Passover sacrifice was offered, the kind of tree branch that was used to mark the doorpost with the blood, and the fact that none of the lambs or the legs, uh, none of the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. All of these are allusions that John is making to Christ as the greater Passover lamb, Christ as our Passover that has been sacrificed, according to 1 Corinthians 5. So, there is profound connection that John is making between the death of Jesus and the Passover. Additionally, John also, we know, has an emphasis on the giving of the Spirit. You remember, John tells us the most of Jesus' teaching on when and how the Father is going to give the Spirit. If you think about the farewell discourse, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, there's multiple places in that section where Jesus speaks to his disciples about the coming of the Spirit, what is the Spirit going to be like, how is the spirit going to be given? What will the spirit do? He will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and disclose it to you, etc. You may also remember that John records for us in chapter seven, when Jesus at the feast of tabernacles stood up and said, uh, if anyone believes in me from his inner being will flow rivers of living water. And in verse 39, John says that Jesus said this about the spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So John is setting us up to expect that the spirit is going to be given, that it is the father and the son together who will pour out the spirit on the church and that that will happen after Jesus is glorified. Now it's clear in John's understanding of the crucifixion and resurrection that John sees the the cross as the throne from which Jesus rules as king, that he sees the cross as essentially the enthronement, the culmination of Jesus' ministry and then the resurrection as sort of the The other side of the coin, if you will, obviously crucifixion and resurrection go together. But whereas many biblical writers put the emphasis on the resurrection of Christ, John puts the emphasis on the crucifixion as the moment of Jesus' triumph and the the finishing of his work. As Jesus says from the cross, it is finished. And it's interesting that what John says about Jesus' death is that he gave up his spirit. John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word here is an odd word. We would expect the writer to say simply that, he gave up his spirit, but actually the verb used here is a unique verb that means he handed over his spirit. And so again, many commentators think John has kind of a double meaning here that John is intending to imply, both that Jesus died and voluntarily gave up his spirit in the sense of death, but also that his death is the moment in which the spirit will be handed over to the disciples. Likewise, we read that when they pierced Jesus' side, blood and water flowed, recalling again Jesus' connection of water and the spirit. And then in John's account of the resurrection, he says, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's clear that John wants us to see the crucifixion as the transition between the ministry of Jesus as our mediator and then the, the moment at which the Holy Spirit now becomes the centerpiece of the mission of God as Christ finishes his work and now the age of the Spirit begins. Now, of course, Pentecost is going to be the most important day of the age of the Spirit. But John wants us to understand that that age begins on the cross. Now, uh, we could go on for a long time because John is full of this kind of symbolism. But I hope this little reflection has just given you a deeper sense of the the beauty of the literature of Scripture, the depth to which the scriptural writers are making connections that, as English readers, we can just sort of read through and sometimes miss. But as we do careful study, as we slow down and read cross references as we read thoughtful commentaries or listen to thoughtful preaching, these connections begin to open up for us. And if you're asking as a, as a newer or younger reader of the Bible, what's the way to see these connections? The answer is get a Bible with cross references. Um, Those are the little tiny letters in the text that are like a little superscription where it will have, it'll say like a or F or G, and it'll connect you down to the footnote or the margin where it'll give you a little cross reference. If you just start paying attention to those, you'll find throughout the writings of the scripture that those little cross-references direct you to some of these connections. If you're just reading the account in John 19, and you get to the place where John says, um, he said these things that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, your cross-references there will direct you to Psalm 34, where that's likely taken from. So, As a slower reader of the Bible, just slowing down and paying attention to the cross-references will reveal a lot of these insights to you. But anyway, it's been fun for me just to get to sit here and offer you some things that didn't make it into the sermon. Because it would have been a 75-minute sermon if they had. But that during Holy Week, uh, reflecting on particularly John's account of the crucifixion and resurrection opens up a deeper sense of worship and love and reflection even on the biblical text itself. So I hope this helps to um, deepen your devotion and your meditation during this Holy Week. Uh, I look forward to uh, celebrating with the entire church, not just my church, but the church this Good Friday and Easter Sunday as we together as God's people remember the death and resurrection of our Savior. Have a great week and thanks for listening to this special episode of the Wednesday Conversation.